Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. In this talk, CAD Student Ambassador Emilia Usubel interviews British Member of Parliament and former Secretary of State for International Development, Andrew Mitchell. Mr. Mitchell talks about his extensive experience in international development, shares some of the most successful development programs he's been involved in, and talks about the challenges and opportunities of a global approach to pressing development issues. Welcome, Mr. Mitchell. Your talk at CID today was titled The Drivers of International Development. To start off our conversation, could you please tell us a bit about your past experience working in international development, both within your official roles in the UK government and outside of it, including your work with Project Umubano? Well, hi, and uh, uh, thank you very much for inviting me here today. Um, I first got involved in international development, really, as a, as a young MP because you have such strong links in your own constituency with the great organizations like Oxfam and Save the Children, Christian Aid, and so on. So then uh, in 2005, I was invited by Michael Howard, who was then the leader of the Conservative Party in Britain, to take up the international development portfolio, which under Labour had become a cabinet job, and I joined the shadow cabinet. And I then spent five years, uh, when David Cameron became party leader, developing a centre-right uh, conservative approach to international development. And um, those five years were fantastically exciting years because what I would do would be to go around the world and sit at the feet and learn from the people who were real experts in international development. So, for example, when I wanted to explore microfinance, I went and sat at the feet of Professor Yunus, and I spent two days with Professor Yunus looking at the Grameen Bank and how he developed his microfinance programme. And then, you know, on many other things, I went to Mali to look at the plight of the cotton grower because Mali is one of the poorest countries in the world, and yet uh, they have millions of people who are engaged in the, in the cotton trade. And they can't sell their cotton because of the protectionist policies of the US and of some parts of Europe. And so I wanted to learn about what, uh, in those situations, causes people to remain in poverty and they can't trade their way out of it. So after five years, I then uh, we won the election, or we came into government, rather, and I then uh, had the post for real as the Secretary of State for International Development, and we were able to put into practice for the first time what was really a centre-right approach to an area of policy and government which had been dominated by the left and by the Labour Party. And uh, in a way, I'm proud of the fact that the changes we made, the, 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 the things that we thought were important, are now considered important by most of the developed world in the way they help in partnership the developing world to make progress. Now, you mentioned Project Mobano in Rwanda, which uh, I set up together with David Cameron, the Conservative Party leader. And it was designed really to do three things. First of all, it was designed to do a tiny bit of good in a country, Rwanda, that has been to hell and back through the terrifyingly awful genocide which killed nearly a million people in 90 days. So it was designed to help them a bit in terms of developing their health service and medicine, their education, the teaching of English, their business to incubate business uh, acumen and try and help uh, develop business skills. 
Uh, and also a bit of sport. We played cricket, and indeed one of the legacies of Project Mubano is that they will have the finest cricket ground north of the Limpopo River in Africa. So that was, that was the first reason. The second reason was to give individual conservatives a life-changing experience. And many of us who've been on the project have had our life and our priorities and our understanding changed. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, to make sure that within the Conservative Party there was a caucus of people who were passionate about development, but also understood what works and what doesn't work from direct hands-on experience in a very poor country. So that was why we did it. It's celebrated its 10th anniversary this year. That's it for Project Mubano. It's done what was required. But it has meant that within the Conservative Party in Britain, there's a good resource of people who really understand international development and are passionate about it. Fantastic. Um, so in what you've just explained, you've mentioned, obviously, your role in the government and the role of government in international development. You've mentioned academia and, and uh, nonprofit organizations. And um, I know in your talk, you talked about the private sector. What are some of the ways that you think uh, the public sector has a lot of strength in driving change in international development? And what are the ways that you think of as positive ways to bring together different sectors to advance those goals? Well, I think you need, first of all, to be very clear about what you're trying to do. Yeah. And in the end, the two key things you're trying to do is to build prosperity, because you know, building, having a job, being economically active, this is how poor people in, in wealthy countries, as well as in poor countries, lift themselves and their families and their communities out of poverty. So the first thing you're trying to do is to build prosperity. And the second thing you're trying to do is to confront conflict which, as I said today, means trying to stop conflict starting once it started stopping it and once it's over reconciling people, which is the reason I first went to Rwanda. So that, that's what you're trying to do, really. And in that endeavour, it involves everything, the public sector, the private sector. And one of the lessons I think we've all had to learn is that the private sector is the engine of development. It's not the enemy of development, as people sometimes think on the left. But everyone's got a role, really, in, in the public sector in terms of driving forward the state building, uh, international, the international public sector in you know, supporting a rules-based system that supports good governance and is opposed to um, tyranny and unfairness and so on. So everyone's got a part to play, but the key thing is to focus on those two areas, building prosperity and stopping conflict. And conflict remember, as someone notably once said, is development in reverse. So during your time working um, in international development in the past many years that you've mentioned, what are some of the most exciting or promising development initiatives that you've seen, uh, whether they've been ones championed by the UK government or otherwise? And what do you see as the biggest factors to that success? Well, it's interesting you should ask that, because of course one of the great joys of being responsible for this area of public policy and government is you can choose what you think is the most important. And there were two big international conferences I hosted with our Prime Minister in Britain. One was on uh, family planning and reproductive health, and the other was on vaccinations. And the first one, which we did in 2011, was designed to ensure that we vaccinate enormous numbers of kids in the poor world under the age of five. And, you know, it is a transformative thing to do because if you vaccinate children, they won't be sick. If they're not sick, their mothers can go to work. There's not always a member of the family who's got to look after them. 
And, of course, they survive, and that means people will have less children. If they know their children are going to survive, then the, 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 the impetus for having more children falls away. So that was very important, and we managed to ratchet in a lot of money around the world as part of the Gavi uh, replenishment in 2011, and it meant that Britain's own contribution uh, over the last five years vaccinated a child every two seconds of every day of the year and saved the life of a child every two minutes from diseases that none of our children in Britain and America die from today. So, you know, I regard that as an important uh, change. The other one was this emphasis on family planning. Uh, much more controversial, of course, because the left don't like it because they think family planning is only one aspect of women's rights, and the right don't like it because you get into the moral majority and the Catholic Church's teaching and so on. And so the main task for me was to keep people focused on giving women the right to decide for themselves whether and when they had children and to try and keep out the political left and right. And we sort of managed to do that. We did it jointly with the Gates Foundation. Um, Melinda uh, Gates uh, was absolutely fantastic. Um, and if everyone stands by their promises on family planning, then we will reduce by half by 2020, so over the eight years since 2012, the number of women in the poor world who want access to contraception and family planning but did not have it in 2012. So we have to make sure that we have to hold everyone's feet to the fire, that they stand by their commitments, and then that would be a world-changing result if half of the women who want access to family planning had that access. And, you know, I remember we, we built a family planning clinic in upcountry Rwanda, uh, we procured the money to build this, this clinic. And uh, I remember watching a lady who'd had four children come into the clinic, and she was terrified that she was pregnant again because she knew that if she was, it would break the structure of her family. And uh, through an interpreter, I heard what she was saying. And when the doctor came back and said, you're not pregnant, she, she tears poured down her face. She laughed, she cried, she leapt in the air. She was so pleased. And then she was able to go and get access to contraception. Um, and, you know, for her, it was transforming her life not to have to have another child. Uh, and I saw for myself the power, that, that the ability to make that decision for yourself if you're a woman has on, on people's lives. And so those would be the two things I would single out for you. Fantastic. Um... So obviously then there are those successes and many others from international cooperation in international development. Um, and today you talked a lot about the role of the United Nations and other international institutions and the strengths that countries around the world can have in coming together to address some of these issues. But what do you also see as a lot of the challenges or some of the challenges in trying to bring together uh, as many countries as are in the United Nations or um, through other multilateral partnerships, uh, how are the challenges in bringing these countries together and aligning interests in advancing international development? Well, they are very great, those challenges, and uh, because you know most countries will identify what their priorities are, just as I've explained, we identified family planning and and vaccinations, and other countries will identify their own priorities, and then they will tend to support them. 
So the way you do it, I think, is by having common denominators where, for example, through the SDGs or as it was the Millennium Development Goals, you can crowd in enough international institutions and countries and national organisations, philanthropic groups and private sector to agree on a particular priority. And the SDGs make that easier. And uh, I suspect that that's the way you do it, really. Um, and then as you get more esoteric and you move up the curve uh, and people fall off because it's not one of their priorities, it becomes more difficult. But yeah. the, 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 the reason why the SDGs were so important and it was right to spend so much time on, on making sure that there was agreement about them is it then gives that sort of international agreement and heft to really go after some of the problems that disfigure our world today. So speaking of international cooperation, you mentioned today in the talk that some of the changes in the United States in terms of our ad current administration and uh, priorities in international development and foreign policy have potentially shifted the way that your government sees are ways that our two countries can coordinate and collaborate in issues of international development. What are some of the current challenges that you're seeing in that partnership um, and where is the UK looking right now in terms of finding that partnership in other countries or in other actors? Well, there's no doubt that President Trump has a different view on protectionism to Britain. In, in Britain, all political parties really believe in free trade. Now. And it's clear that President Trump's view is different from that. Um, similarly, in terms of climate change, Britain was a very strong supporter of the Paris Accords. And for whatever reason, President Trump is not. And so, you know, on those two issues, for example, Britain is probably closer to China today than to the US. But, but uh, I had the opportunity earlier this year of going to Washington as the guest of a number of think tanks and meeting, talking to people on the Hill. And my view is that rather than confront uh, the, the different priorities, which the Trump regime quite legitimately have, it is to try and persuade them that, you know, the use of soft power is much cheaper than hard power. Defeating ISIL in Syria and Iraq militarily, that's 10% of the task, and it's the easy bit. 90% is about confronting a pernicious and evil nihilist ideology, and how we do that uh, is through soft power. And therefore, you know, I was trying to say, rather than slash the budget by 31%, do think about how you deploy it. And for example, rather than hitting the United Nations over the head with a blunt instrument, evaluate the 43 agencies that make up the UN. That's what we did in 2011. And some of them have never been evaluated since they were started in 1947. But look at them to see whether they're providing value for money, whether their priorities are the right priorities. And use your financial muscle within reason to support the areas which you think are important. Don't just slash and burn an approach. And so, you know, that seems to me to not to confront the views of the Trump administration, but try and, as it were, draw some of the benefits, focus on the things that they would approve of, and try and get there in a, in a, in a slightly less direct way. So some listeners may be interested in serving in the government with the aim of impacting international development or international justice more broadly. Um, what advice would you have for those people who are interested in this type of career and having this kind of impact? 
and maybe specifically for people who are here at the Kennedy School studying, what kinds of skills would you recommend they try to acquire during their studies to best prepare them to have a positive impact in this kind of career? Well, first of all, I would say how much I hope that people, you know, the people who come to the Kennedy School are by and large highly motivated and very clever. So they have a real contribution to make. And how they make that contribution, that's that's the interesting part of your question, because for some of them, doing it as a practicing politician could be enormously frustrating. For others of them, you know, there's a there's a feeling that, that politics is where the power is. If you want to change things, that it's change comes through through politics. And you know, in a way you can be a very brilliant policy wonk in a in a policy heavy organization and you can develop the policies but you you know that won't necessarily get the change you want to see it's like you know you can build a very brilliant engine for a car but you need the car uh, the engine's not enough you need the car to to get to where you want to go so I think you have to work out what where your talents and your your ambition lies um, but there is a place for all those things and in politics politics can be very frustrating uh, it's certainly a tremendous game of snakes and ladders, you know, where you, you go down a snake or up a ladder and there's no rationality to politics, really, and a career in politics is a very up-and-down business. Um, but in the end, it is how you make progress and, uh, you know, these brilliant jobs where you get an opportunity to hang on to the levers of power and change and pull them and and make these changes... Uh, they are very fulfilling. So, you know, to the brilliant people who make up the Kennedy School and who are here and who are looking at the world, you know, develop your worldview, work out what contribution you want to make and then do it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.